The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, October 23rd, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know that the Mets made the World Series yesterday, right? And I barely even talked about it. It takes a lot. But such is my respect for you, the possible non-baseball fan, that I'm not going to inundate you with this. But I want to play this clip from an interview I did a couple weeks ago. Sometimes this happens. It was with Phil Rosenthal. He's the creator of Everybody Loves Raymond. We were talking about... He's, he has this TV show on PBS where he goes to interesting places to eat. We were talking about how great the Queens neighborhood of Flushing was for Chinese food. And remember, he, he's from Queens. He created Everybody Loves Raymond. He's a professed Mets fan. So I went there with him in this way. Take the seven to the end. What, it takes an hour? Right. One past the Mets. One, One past, past the Mets. Point. Yeah. Okay. You get out and right away there's, and you know who t- turned me on to something? John Rocker? Uh, Nancy Silverton, uh-huh. the great chef from L.A. Mozart. You might have heard the joke or the reference not landing. I'm going to do that thing where you explain the joke and Phil's the comedy professional. He'll tell you how hilarious that can be. But John Rocker was the guy who pitched for the Braves, who was essentially run out of the league when he told a Sports Illustrated reporter that it doesn't take the seven train because they're all sort of freaks and weirdos going out to flushing. Listen, if he had gotten it, we would have bonded. He'd invite me out for food. Sadly, I won't be cast in his next show. On the show today, Sarah Vowell talks about her new book, which looks at a French patriot, but he was a patriot to America. France is still a little meh on him. And in the spiel, I solve politics. You're welcome, America. But first, Sarah Val. So, Sarah Vowell is here. Her new book is Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. And somewhat is italicized, as is everything Sarah Vowell says. Hey, Sarah. A designer did that. I did not italicize. What would you, if you had to uh, punctuate or fonticize any of these words, what would they be? I don't know if I've ever said this title out loud. Should I try? Do. Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. See, it just blended in there. Because yeah. I like to downplay. Right, exactly. I don't like to make a big deal out of anything. I think that voicing, especially... You know, you've, yeah. you've done as many radio pieces as I have. But that is the amateur falls into the trap of going, and it was flooded. But you're, <laughs> what, what you're supposed to go is, and it was flooded. Yeah. And then the flood no, that's washes what, over one you. Thing, no, like, everyone is in love with Amy Schumer, and I really like her too, but I really like how she just kind of, like, downplays all her punchlines, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. We have to be a role model for these little girls, because who do they have? All they have, literally, is the Kardashians. And she doesn't have a Malala poster in her room, trust me. And is that a great message for little girls? A whole family of women who take the faces they were born with as like a light suggestion? Is that great? No. Lafayette, why him? Really, that's the question you're gonna ask? Sure. (laughs) I've asked all these irrelevant ones. Oh boy, Lafayette, why Lafayette? I mean, one of the reasons the is living, you know, in, living in New York City. I lived on near Union Square for yeah. about 10 years, and there's that statue of him in Union Square. You know, the, of the statue of Young Lafayette, it's on Union Square East, sort of between 15th and 16th. And I walked by him almost every day. He was kind of one of my neighbors. So he was my neighbor. But then also um, I was very intrigued with, not the, so much the story of him in the Revolutionary War, but when he came back to America in 1824, like almost a half century later as an old man, 
The country went berserk. Like two thirds of the population of New York City met his boat. He he yeah, took yeah eighty thousand out of like one hundred twenty five thousand yeah. people supposedly. And, and so like and for a, over a year it was like every night a party everywhere thousands of thousands of people it was like the whole country loved him as one, and we don't really have a lot of people places or things in this country that everyone agrees on. Right, and so. That attracted me. I think you wrote Meryl Streep and Barbecue. Yeah. Those I, are the things we agree on. So put to understand how big Lafayette was, he's he was as big as Meryl Streep. I plus would barbecue. say even Willie Nelson level. Yeah. Yeah. With the crossover appeal. The yes. stoners love them. Crossover appeal. Old, yeah. yeah. Okay, so but as a nineteen year old who is who's given a pretty important You're talking about Lafayette. I'm a little older than that. <laughs> as a, as Sarah, a nineteen year old. As a nineteen year old, you've done so much in your life. So as a nineteen year old, the commission he gets in the army is an important one. Is it mostly for diplomatic reasons? Like Washington's smart enough, hey, we gotta know to get the uh, French on our side, we'll throw this Lafayette's way. I mean Originally, it's kind of just an honor. He's basically a glorified intern, and they make him a major general, partly because he's French, he's an aristocrat, and he's part of the court of Louis XVI, and the founders are trying like mad to suck up to Louis XVI. That's why they've sent Ben Franklin to basically shake him down for money because they want the French help. They want they want money. They want gunpowder. They want guns. They want cannons. They want sailors and soldiers. They just want the French to come help. And they, because Lafayette is close to the king, they decide to let him help out. And he also volunteered to work for free, which, really like you know, they found yeah. appealing. And then I mean, they kind of take him on because they don't want to insult the French court. But then it turns out he's very handy and he's very gung-ho and he fights and he wants to fight. And, you know, the Continental Army is plagued with deserters at this point and at the whole time, basically, because they're not getting paid or fed or shod. So, but here's this kid and all he wants to do is fight and help. And he kind of endears himself to George Washington by, like, backing him up like Lafayette in his first battle, the Battle of Brandywine, he gets shot. And then he has to recuperate from that. He gets shot in the calf. And I mean, he can't stay in bed. He like puts a boot on his good leg and then wraps his bum leg in a blanket and rides back to the front. So, and he really endeared himself to Washington and, and all the men because he was in it with them. Yeah. He's like Rudy or some sort of mascot figure. Is that a sports thing you're telling me? Yeah, no, I don't mean Giuliani. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Rudy. He was this <laughs> compelling figure who right. wasn't French but was short, which in college football is like the version of being French. Being French is still worse in college football, but... Probably true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. terrible. So does he become an actual good fighter or just a uh, gung-ho mm. kid with piss and vinegar? I mean, yeah, he really, like... Um, has a knack for it. I mean, he comes from a long, long, long line of warriors stretching back to um, the Crusades and Joan of Arc. His male ancestors have been soldiers pretty much for hundreds and hundreds of years. He went to riding school and was part of the household troops of the King of France. I mean, even at 19, he has way more military experience than most of the Continental Army. And then he, he just has a knack for 
let's call it military stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he knows how to, for one thing, he knows how to rally men. And also as a European, there are certain rules of warfare that he knows and and feels they need to be followed. But can we really say, but for this one guy, the French wouldn't have been as large a benefactors? I mean, you know, they no, hated I the mean, English. I mean, I'm not one a... of those, re- yeah. you know, we have all read these books where the especially like proper biographies where the writer makes it seem like if this subject of this book had never been born yeah. you know everything would have gone to hell and we would all be speaking german right yeah. now or Coincidentally, something you the know. subject of the book i've <laughs> dedicated my life to he's yeah. important and he kind of symbolizes to me he personifies the importance of the french alliance in general i mean he is very important but i think they could have lived without him sure Like, for one thing, right when he arrives, there's this whole conspiracy in the Congress and the Army to fire George Washington, who was, in the long run, a pretty handy person to keep around, right? And Lafayette just immediately attaches himself to Washington like a barnacle. I mean, one thing, he's an orphan. Washington doesn't have any kids. There's this kind of father-son relationship from the get-go. But um, this is like when... Lafayette arrives at 1777. I mean, Washington still has four more years of fighting left and then two more until the surrender that he has to, like, hang tough. So Washington has a long road ahead of him. And so just having this one kid who comes from, you know, one of the greatest militaries in the world backing him up and, like, standing with him and talking smack about his enemies who are supposed to also be his comrades, you know, I think that must have been enormously gratifying for Washington, just trying to buck up Washington to stick it out. I mean, Washington says as much. This is tangential, but I know you'd have a couple good thoughts. What do you think the biggest flaws of the Constitution are? (laughs) I mean, like one of them, you know... The whole three-fifths of person slavery thing is a problem. Well, it's a problem, but at the time, it was a brilliant compromise. I mean, you know, and that's interesting. Like, uh, I remember, like, one of the things that stands out in the Ken Burns Civil War documentary is Shelby Foote talking about this and how the founders don't get enough credit for their genius being a genius for compromise, yeah. you know? And, and that's the difference with the French Revolution. It's not all about blood. But and it's chaos easy for and... you and me sitting, you know, in this room in New York City to s- say, oh, to pat them on the back for their compromise. I mean, we're not one of those three fifths people. Right. But if it weren't, I've like, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But if there was no compromise and in the Constitution it said a black person was a vote, that would mean that all those slaveholding states would have such disproportionate power. It would be a greater un- injustice. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> so the, the I asked you about the flaws of the Constitution. I mean, it's but like there is like actually, I mean, yes, this all is like intellectually fascinating. But um, like to me, the hardest page of that book to write was... Um, I'm writing about the euphoria when the uh, in the colonies when the French sign a formal treaty of alliance with the Americans. And like at Valley Forge, they're yelling, you know, long live the king of France. 
But then in Britain, they understand what this means. It means they're going to lose. And there's this little moment where some of the people in the British government are like, we got to get these guys back. They send this kind of half-hearted peace commission. And and the prime minister stands up in the House of Commons and, and says, like, we need to capitulate on everything they care about except independence and bring them back. Because, like, you know, he's basically saying we need to get them back. Yeah. And... When he says, like, we have to capitulate on everything, I think one description of the the members of parliament, it's just melancholy silence. And, like, I take a moment of silence because that moment when it's past the point of no return of going back to Great Britain, yay, you know, 4th of July, insert here. But it also, <laughs> I mean... If we had gone back to be part of Great Britain, they outlawed slavery in 1833, which is 30 years earlier than we did. Like, if we had capitulated and gone back to being, you know, colonies of Great Britain, that could have saved, like, a generation and a half of slaves from bondage. So maybe think about that next 4th of July. Oh, I prefer to think of because I mean we're so ingrained to grow up in this country to be like rah 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 independence and I mean obviously we we believe that we believe that all men are created equal meaning like you can't just rule us because you were born to some guy who is ruling us you know but then if you believe all men are created equal what do you root for do you root for independence or do you root for going back to a situation where we get rid of slavery sooner what did Lafayette think of that? I mean, Lafayette was a total abolitionist. And he, in fact, purchased a plantation in French Guiana for the sole purpose of freeing those slaves and give, giving them wages and educating them. Like, he he was a member of, I think it was called the Society to Free the Blacks or something. And Robespierre is a member of that, too. He was a very staunch abolitionist. So appreciating history and appreciating the fact that at in different times, people have different mores than today. Now there's this movement to expunge Jackson. Wait, do the, they? Th- oh, different mores so. in terms of whether we acceptable. we like someone for being an Indian fighter right. at one point and maybe find that distasteful later. Yeah, so later. what do you think about Jackson expunging him from the 20, the Democratic Party taking his name off the Jefferson-Jackson dinner? You're part Native American, I think I remember from that I episode. Am, I am part Cherokee, and yeah. so both on both sides of my family, um, there were... Cherokees on the Trail of Tears. Right. So this is not just any any old tribe. No. This is the this was this his is like great the, target. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, any kid who's even like a little bit Cherokee, I would imagine it's like being a little bit Irish. And you mention Oliver Cromwell, and everyone goes nuts. You know, mm-hmm. there's just no. We have no love for that man. And you, I mean, I knew I hated him before I ever heard of George Washington, kind of thing. You know. Yeah. So, and I also do not like, like, every time I open my wallet and, you know, want to buy a taco, I have to look at his face. Because it's just distracting. Because it's just like, oh, yay, tacos. And then you open your wallet and it's like, oh, yeah, my poor ancestors marched at gunpoint by the U.S. Army. So, yeah, I mean, I'm cool with getting Jackson off the 20. Right. We'll keep the town in Florida and the town in Mississippi named after him, take him off the money. But, I mean, then it's the question of who who replaces him. Mm-hmm. What do you think? 
Well, I mean, I also grew up in Montana. This is almost like, like a the, uh, Republican debate. Who should replace him? <laughs> and then what's your Secret Service code name? Wait, you're supposed to be encouraging me to want to keep talking. <laughs> like, I mean, I also grew up in Montana, and I mean, one of the people being bandied about right is Jeanette Rankin. And, I mean, she is such a fascinating figure. I mean, she's the first woman who was in the House of Representatives, and she's the only person who voted against World War One and World War Two. Which you would think, like, Montana's a pretty, like, macho state. And I think most people there are generally cool with our entrance into World War II. But pretty much across the board when I was growing up there, I mean, there's a statue of her in my hometown. Like, she, we were all really proud of this. And we were all proud of her and the idea that she would vote her conscience, whether you agreed with her or not, you know. So, I mean, she's, I think, she could be an interesting contender. Sarah Val, author of Lafayette in the somewhat United States. Thank you, Sarah. You're welcome. You might know Sarah's other books, Unfamiliar Fishes, The Wordy Shipmates, Assassination Vacation, The Partly Cloudy Patriot. Those are all good titles. Thank you. Yeah, good job. November 16th in New York, the Superfest on Broadway, bringing together the talents of three Gab Fests, the Political Gab Fest, the Culture Gab Fest, and Hang Up and Listen. I am one-ninth of those talents, not just in headcount, I think proportionally. So get your tickets at slate.com slash live. You'll also find out, if you are so inclined, how to join us at a post-show cocktail party. A couple weeks ago, I attended this event called Politicon. It was trying to be the Comic-Con of politics, which doesn't really work, although a lot of people looking like Jar Jar Binks showed up to both. But actually, it was a pretty good event. There were a lot of good panels. I was on a couple, and in between the panels, I walked around and just stuck a microphone in the faces of people who I thought would be learned or perhaps deleterious to our advancement as a culture, political figures, and I asked them all the same question. If you had one fix, one corrective for, one systemic corrective for American politics, you could change the Constitution or you could just be God and snap your fingers and have your will be implemented. What would that systemic fix be to help the process? So I wanted to play a few of the answers that I got. Let's start with James Carville. Some way to attack money and campaigns until you fix that. You're, 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 you're just behind the eight ball. And it, it, the, the influence of money in politics is just gotten, it's just awful. That, that would be my number one thing. So Carville's answer, that something needs to be done to curb the influence of money in politics, was the most popular answer. In fact, it is what most people said. Publicly financed campaigns would, I think, solve a lot of problems. I think I would get rid of um, the current campaign finance structure. I would get money out of politics. I don't know how you do it, but I think Citizens United took us down the wrong path. Constitutional amendment for public financing of campaigns. That, that would go a long way to eliminating the corruption, which is overwhelming the system at every level. So there you heard former Congressman Dennis Kucinich, current Daily Show correspondent Jordan Klepper, GOP strategist Rob Collins, and Clay Aiken, yes, American Idol Clay Aiken, who ran for Congress and is actually pretty knowledgeable about politics. But I want to play a little more of one of those answers, Rob Collins. He's the former chief of staff for Republican Majority Leader Eric Cantor. He ran the Senate Republican campaign quite successfully. Let's get into his answer. So what would you do? Just no rules? 
I'd have 100% uh, disclosure, um, but bring it back under a, a more um, accountable system where people know the financing from start to finish and uh, the, the people who are putting the ads up are ultimately responsible. Would there be any limitations to a single donor giving you know half a million half a billion dollars there isn't now so why would that start right but you have to hide it under a super PAC now well, that's because the rules that the, the, the rules that were passed to change the system and make it better have only made it worse and more secretive and more unclear to the voters who's paying for these elections I think that's telling he says the way to reform money in politics is to have no limit to money in politics just to have disclosure. Because even though everyone says, oh yeah, this is the biggest problem, there is such a divergence on the answer that it will never get solved. It's why things don't change. All right, there were some other answers given to me, and I want to play a collection of some of my favorite ones. Here's the former head of the Republican National Committee, Michael Steele, with I think my favorite answer. Send everyone in Congress home. When? How? What do you mean? Send them home for, for six months. They don't get to come to Washington for six months. They spend six months actually in their districts, in their communities, talking to people. And the people will only allow them to come back to Washington when they're ready to work. Because at the end of the day, the dysfunction in our politics is all about that. And it's where, that's where it ends. That's where it begins. So send them back home and have them sit down and learn how to do their job. And so, and so the legislative session would be packed within the six months that they're actually That's in Washington. Right, that they're actually in Washington. Washington. The states do it that way. And, that, and, and then and you take that time, all of this back and forth, through, you know, three days here, two days there, we're in session. When I, no, no, no. Keep your ass at home for six months and learn how to do the job so when you come to Washington, you have your priorities from the people of what we need to deal with, from taxes and spending to war and peace. And then in those six months, you get it done. Here's a guy named Patrick Millsaps, who for a time ran Newt Gingrich's presidential campaign. I would make an amendment to the Constitution that Congress has to live by every law they pass. Mm -hmm. Period. That's it. Regardless of your party affiliation, that whoever's in charge, because they, they, they exempt themselves out. I mean, a lot of people don't understand. And this is Ben Mathis of the podcast Kick-Ass Politics. Politicians, try to be a little nicer. Don't be quite such a jerk to everyone or to other politicians. I, I think there's a high jerk factor for anyone that goes into politics. And I'm saying this as someone who's dealt with a lot of politicians over the years. So, Good luck with that, Ben. Ben is really a nice guy, by the way. Maybe only a nice guy would propose that as his reform. And remember I said Clay Aiken impressed me? Here's some evidence. Or, you know, can I do another one instead? Sure, let's do two. Uh, maybe we do a... Uh, we do nonpartisan commissions to draw all of our congressional districts. If we did that, then we'd probably also end up getting money out of politics eventually, too. And that's possible. That's plausible. Some states do it. Some states do it. Some states do it. The Supreme Court upheld the right of the state to do that in Arizona this past summer. So um, uh, I'd love to see places like North Carolina do the same thing. Unfortunately, these politicians are the ones who have to allow that to happen in a lot of states. North Carolina the, the populace, the electorate is not allowed to submit a constitutional amendment like it can by petition in a lot of other states. So in North Carolina, we have to wait, wait for the Republican-held House and Senate to agree to do a nonpartisan commission. And I don't feel like they have any motivation to do that. Let me ask you this one extra question. If you get your wish in 20 years, and I said the last 20 years, will you have spent it mostly in entertainment or mostly in politics or a little bit of each? Well, I don't know that I would. anybody would ever want to spend 
their time in politics. I mean, I think I think people do. People desperately public, do. Public advocacy is important, and I think that that's what Politicon is doing, which is kind of showing the a crossroads where entertainment and politics can meet together and and not be so vitriolic. Politics is a dirty word. Entertainment's not. Blend them a little bit together. You come up with something like social awareness, public advocacy. It's not quite as bad. But the one person who I had the oddest interaction with was Michelle Bachman former presidential candidate and congressperson, Michelle Bachman. So you understand what my question was, right? Everyone else did. I played it for you. It didn't seem that confusing. Here is the exact question as I posed it to Michelle Bachman. Michelle Bachman, if you had one fix, could be constitutional, could be a snap of your finger for American politics, what would it be? But she seemed not to get the question. Or rather, she just really wanted to answer what she wanted to answer. It would be to end the nuclear agreement with Iran, because there's no other issue that is more important than that. It's head and shoulders above any other issue. Every day, the Ayatollah, his minions, and the parliament in Iran shout, death to America, death to America. In fact, five days... And with that, I asked Michelle Bachman if she was enjoying her time in L.A., and she answered, no, I would never tell a person they should vaccinate their children. Then she disappeared in a cloud of smoke and what I think might have been tangerine. So we didn't solve politics that day, but we did solve the answer to the question, who is Dennis Kucinich's favorite member of the 1956 Cleveland Indians? Rocky Calavito. Rocky Calavito. You know and what why? Is, tell me. You tell because me uh, Rocky Calavito proved that you can hit a home run every time you're up at the plate. He had four home runs in a row for Cleveland. And so I always carry this card to remind me that it's possible to hit a home run every time you're up. Well, there's this guy, Daniel Murphy, he plays on the Mets. You know what? He's probably not going to vote Democrat. Let's forget about him. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi believes the best way to cure politics is to restrict the franking privilege just to those people who are actually named Frank. Andy Bauer is our executive producer. He believes that Robert's rules of order should exist, but the rules should be dictated by Jake the Snake Roberts. Oh, what order we would get. The gist, our cure for American politics is to replace cloture votes with those large double-ended padded staffs they used in American gladiators because that would be cool and more people would care. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening.